I just want to quote an authority on the subject that there was in fact an evolutionary process by which ancient uh, forms of life evolved into the more complex and uh, modern forms of life. A guy by the name of, uh, in Boston, a guy by the name of Richard C. Lewontin, a geneticist, one-time president of the Society for the Study of Evolution, a well-known writer on science and currently a professor of zoology at Harvard. Hear what he has to say about evolution? The, uh, the writer says, I had seen a quote from Lewontin used as a chapter head in a book titled Science on Trial, and the quote read, Evolution is fact, not theory. Birds evolve from non-birds. Humans evolve from non-humans. Pretty innocent statement. Finally, it was time to get around to the point of my visit. What about, what about these claims? Evolution is fact, birds evolve from non-birds, humans from non-humans. The cladists disapproved, I said. He paused for a split second and said, those are very weak statements, I agree. Then he made one of the clearest statements about evolution I've ever heard. He said, those statements flow simply from the assertion that all organisms have parents. It is an empirical claim, I think, that all living organisms have living organisms as parents. The second empirical claim is that there was a time on Earth when there were no mammals. Now, if you allow me those two claims as empirical, then the claim that mammals arose from non-mammals is a simple conclusion. It's the deduction from two empirical claims. That's all I claim for it. You can't make the direct empirical statement that mammals arose from non-mammals. What I think is an even more uh, revealing statement is, he then goes on, the writer goes on to say to the, to, the, to the scientist, but the cladists say they don't really have that kind of information. Stuff derived from fossils. I'll read the whole thing. Lewontin's deduction was a simple one. The only problem is, that it appears to be based on the evidence derived from fossils, I said. And the cladists say that they don't have that kind of information. So the scientist says, Lewontin says, of course they don't. In fact, the stuff I've written on creationism, which isn't much, has always made that point. There is a vast weight of empirical evidence about the universe, which says, a vast weight of evidence about the universe, which says, that unless you invoke supernatural causes, 
the birds could not have arisen from muck by any natural processes. Well, if the birds couldn't have arisen from muck by any natural processes, then they had to arise from non-birds. The only alternative is to say that they did arise from muck because God's finger went out and touched the muck. <laughs> That's the only alternative. That is to say that there was a non-natural process. And that's really where the action is. Either you think that complex organisms arose by non-natural phenomena, or you think that they arose by natural phenomena. If they arose by natural phenomena, they had to evolve. That's all there is to it. That's the only claim I'm making. Basically, if you read through this article, these assumptions that every high school kid makes that there are fossil records, that there are bones on file that prove that this came from that and that came from this. It isn't true. There is no such file. There's no such evidence. There are no such bones. Yes, but those bones don't prove anything. They're just bones. If we can trust the imagination of the scientist who puts together what that thing must have looked like. In other words, when the scientist is being honest and you put him against the wall and say, just what exactly do you know for sure from these bones and from these fossils, the answer is nothing. It's like trying to imagine what a car is because you found a few screws from a carburetor. Quote. <laughs> so, when the science books or the, or the, or the articles in, uh, in, in popular magazines that say that the scientists found proof of this, that, it's not proof. It's speculation. It's based on a bunch of guesses, on a bunch of estimates, and on a bunch of wild imagination, like what color skin the dinosaurs had. What then do they know? Here's what the man says. The man says, we only know two things. We only know that there weren't always mammals. We also know that Living things come from living things. So if you tell me that there weren't always human beings, that there was a time when there were no human beings, then I am logically forced to assume that there were living things that were pre-human and that humans came from that. But to call that a scientific statement is stretching it a bit. That's not science. Science means what you can duplicate in a, in a laboratory. Science means what you can test. Science means what you can marshal evidence for. This is pure imagination. Particularly, particularly when even the two empirical claims on which the whole notion is based may or may not be correct.
do we know that there was a time when there were no humans? No humans. No mammals. How do we know there was a time when there were no mammals? Actually, we don't know that. We assume. Also, how could we possibly say that it is an empirical claim that all living organisms come from living organisms? There's no such... That's not true either. It's not not true. But then you can't call it science. You see. Then you can say, yeah, it's possible. Right. Just the way previous lives are possible. But we can't yeah. say actually. That's right. That's right. That's right. So when you've got a double thing like that, you say, first of all, I am guessing that there that all living organisms come from living organisms. And based on that guess, I will make another guess. That humans come from some pre-human form of life. And then to call that a fact, and to call that science, and to say we know, we don't know. It's really total speculation. Now, <clears throat> other fields of science themselves, like the field called cladists, who are not very popular because they never discover anything, they claim that the entire language of evolution is not only non-scientific, but that it's a hoax. The use of certain words that make things sound very impressive and very, um, very factual are really nonsense words to begin with. As for example, everybody knows that vertebrates come from non-vertebrates. The cladists say, cladists are the scientists whose job, whose, whose role is to classify and, and uh, categorize the various things that exist in this world. For example, is a tomato a fruit or a vegetable? Their, yeah. So their job is to determine what species does a tomato belong to. Or um, there's some other Anyway, that is their job. When you see a bug, you take it to what is it? Uh, it's a fruit. Okay, so these guys, these guys basically spend their time categorizing and identifying the various species that exist in the world. All right. What, for example, is an ape? According, according to the cladists, According to the cladists, the word ape doesn't mean anything. It doesn't describe anything. Um, their reaction to evolution, their reaction to the statement that vertebrates come from invertebrates, their, their response to that is, you're talking gibberish. There is no such thing as an invertebrate. 
if you're a scientist, you have to say something. When you say that vertebrates come from invertebrates, you've said nothing because there's no such thing as an invertebrate. It doesn't mean anything. Invertebrate means something that doesn't have a spine. Like a jellyfish or like a strawberry. <laughs> so the cladists say, by saying that vertebrates come from invertebrates, you're saying that maybe they come from strawberries. Because a strawberry is an invertebrate. So they accuse the evolutionists of creating a species that doesn't exist. Because you cannot define or categorize a being by what it doesn't have. So you can't say that there is a form of life, there is an identifiable species, and we identify them by the fact that they have no vertebrae. That's not scientific. That's double talk. So that, in fact, when the scientist says that the vertebrae comes from non-vertebrae, it's exactly like saying, we don't know what a vertebrae comes from. It comes from a non. What does that mean? That scientific talk? <clears throat> so you see that the, the scientist quoted here didn't use those terms. He didn't say, we know that there weren't always vertebrates in the world, and then the empirical claim is, or the conclusion of the, from this empirical claim is, that vertebrates come from non He didn't use that language. He said there weren't always mammals, and that therefore the mammals must have come from non-mammals. What is a non-mammal? Anything, you name it. What's a non-mammal? Yeah. Are they saying then that they came from fish? No. What kind of proof do you have that it came from fish? None at all. But it must have come from something that wasn't a mammal. So it could have come from a tomato. Only we don't know what a tomato is yet. <laughs> so, so we can't say that. Maybe it came from a strawberry. So it's a totally non-scientific statement. Other than to say, this wasn't always, so who knows what it came from. And that's what it amounts to. That's the empirical claim. First they weren't, now they are. Therefore, ta-da, non-mammals come into existence. We don't know, we're guessing. We're assuming. Then there's another thing, a rather, a rather necessary. A scientist cannot say that a given condition is fact because we've never seen anything other than that. The scientist who says it's an empirical fact that every living organism comes from another living organism, that's not true. There's no such fact. The empirical claim comes only from the observations. We've never seen a living thing come from a non-living thing. Therefore, all living things must come from living things. It's not true. 
All you're saying is that you've never yet seen a living thing coming from a non-living thing. You can't call that a fact. That may be an honest observation of life, but that's not a scientist's observation. Because anybody can do that. You don't have to be a scientist to say, I never saw anything come from a non But to say we've never seen it happen is not a law. So when a scientist says, there are no ghosts, there's no such thing as ghosts. Why? Have you ever seen a ghost? I haven't seen a ghost. Anybody see it? Nobody see it. That's it. There are no ghosts. That's not scientific. That's nothing. Scientists don't say that. So this empirical claim that all living things come from living things, is that a scientific observation or is that merely a... It's a very good surmise. For which you don't have to be a scientist, right? Based on nothing. Evidence and <laughs> no. There isn't, but there isn't, there isn't any. There are no facts and figures. There is nothing in the living organism that says, I came from a living organism. It's just that we've never seen it any other way. And that can't be considered science. Because if it could, then we could turn around and say, well, in that case, the evolution of species cannot possibly be. Because have you ever seen a, an ape become a person? Yes. You ever seen an ape become a person? Ever seen seen a person? The other way around. <laughs> exactly. So they've got it backwards. As a matter of fact, that is true. The Medrash says that in the building of the Tower of, of Bavel, some of the people there were punished not in that not only their language changed, but that they became apes. Yeah, we might as well. <laughs> we might as well. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is that evolution is is a religion. And in order to get into it, you have to take a leap of faith. And you have to believe the impossible. In other words, you have to believe things that cannot be reproduced and have never been seen. You might as well believe anything. Also, I like this, this uh, cautious language. What is an empirical claim? Scientists used to speak of empirical facts. What is an empirical claim? If it's empirical, why is it a claim? And if it's only a claim, what makes it empirical? Mm -hmm. I would think so. Yeah, and the theory from 10 years ago becomes fact. <laughs> so why? Yeah. At any rate, so at this point, maybe what you're saying is 10 years from now, Evolution will be a fact, but right now, to the best knowledge of those who are most familiar with the field of evolution, it is basically a claim based on two empirical observations, not on evidence, not on bones, not on fossils, none of that, that whole thing. As a matter of fact, he says here, in this article, he interviewed the curator of a, of a museum where they had had 
in their whole, they had had this sequence. Now you see it sometimes in textbooks and school books, where they show the little horse and the bigger horse and the bigger horse until the horse becomes what we know it today. And he spoke to the curator, and um, the guy told him that uh, he was so embarrassed by that thing, he doesn't know how it got up on the wall, bec because it's, um, it's so, it's so un totally untrue. There's absolutely no evidence to it, and it's like, and he's embarrassed that it got into a museum. The man makes a very innocent observation, interesting observation here also. He says that concerning the missing link, you know, everybody's looking for the missing link between between um, animal and human. And um, this guy says, the scientist says, he says, there's no way of finding that link because. If this thing we find is similar enough to human beings so that we could claim empirically that this is the ancestor of the human being, then it's not interesting. Then it's just a human being. If it's dissimilar enough to be interesting, then there's no way we can claim ancestry. Huh? <clears throat> because to prove that this was born from that, when you're talking about something that happened, according to them, f f five million to five billion years ago, what kind, of, what kind of ancestry can you establish? Even if you could prove that they both existed, even if you can prove that one existed before the other, that that means ancestry? One, one professor said, in certain cities, they decided to um, pretty up, pretty up the, uh, the dumps. And they take these junkyards, and they cover it with sand, and they, and they seed, the, they cover it with earth, and they seed the earth, and you get a little mountain, and you've hidden your garbage. So they've done this to a number of, of, of um, they places where they dump old cars. And if you see those dump yard, those junkyard, they dump the cars on top of each other. Now they've covered it with, with dirt, and they've planted things on it, and it's a mountain. He says 2,000 years from now, an archaeologist is going to dig into that mountain. And he's going to find that on the top layer, the cars are very long <laughs> with big tires, etc. And the deeper he digs, the smaller they are. And then they get big again. And he will come to the conclusion that Studebakers are the ancestors of the Lincoln. <laughs> or something, something along those lines. Because, uh, because, you know, they came first. They were buried first. But even if you could establish a sequence, you still can't establish ancestry. If you have an observation, you see that in the world there were first little horses, then there were bigger horses, now there are very big horses. Does that mean that one evolved from the other? 
It's tempting to say that they did, but how do you know they did? You don't know that. Or it's possible that the atmospheric conditions changed, and therefore uh, the animals ate different kinds of grasses and different kinds of things, and they grew up different. I mean, the, the possibilities are infinite. So, what, so what does the Torah say about dinosaurs? If dinosaurs existed, they existed this, along with uh, with. But what if dinosaurs did exist? What does that have to do with evolution? Nothing. Oh, so, wh so what? So there used to be very big animals, so? What does that prove? But why is it, a, why is it an issue to say that, um, and I agree with you, evolution uh, requires a leap of faith also, we do have a lot of empirical evidence, but you, you know, you argue so well that we also have empirical evidence that God exists. The point is, why does it? Why can't you have evolution and God? Why can't you have the idea that God created the world and uh, things evolved slowly, and that each day? But I mean, why can't they exist together? Why does one have to conclude the other? Well, before you're going to start making a shidduch between between God and evolution, you first have to make sure that evolution is a worthy <laughs> a worthy partner, you know, a worthy uh, mate. To say, let's make peace between them before we even know that evolution has any value, why? Why should we? What's what's the benefit to that? And what I'm trying to say is that according to the when you when you see these articles where they strip away all the the hype on science, what it boils down to is that there is no evidence whatsoever. Not that there is evidence and, and, we, and we're trying to disprove it. There isn't any evidence of, evo of evolution. What I'm trying to say is that you could have evidence that may be strong, may be weak, may be convincing, may be non-convincing. And you can debate it. You can argue it. You can compare. What I'm saying now is that there is there is there was a skull that for a long time, Lucy, that for a long time was considered evidence of something or another. And, and again, I'm not going into the arguing whether it is good evidence or not good evidence. But it was considered evidence of something until it was discovered that the whole thing was simply a lie. It was a simple monkey skull. And they purposely and maliciously exaggerated and made a big thing out of it because they had spent thousands of dollars on this dig and they had to come up with something. So I'm not saying that the evidence is not good. I'm saying that there is no evidence. There's only speculation. You can't call it evidence. When they find a skull that turns out to be 12 million years old, that's part of the evidence. Evidence of what? 
What does that prove? So it is a 12 million year old skull. Therefore, and it looks a little bit like a human skull. Therefore, you can't call that evidence. <coughs> but what do you call it? A skull. Yes, but if it's 12 million years, I mean, is there any way, I'm supposing, I mean, there are hypotheses that, it, that they can say that it's 12 million years old. Maybe it's only 5,000 years old. Okay, so the only thing that really gets stated, which is in conflict with Torah, is the age of the universe. But evolution? There's no evidence to evolution. There's only evidence to a, sequo to a sequence of, but, but ancestry? So what can we say about that? Age of the universe. Yeah. Okay, we'll get to... This is, this is basically what I'm trying to lead up to. Where is our confidence? What do we put our confidence in? When the scientists came out <clears throat> and proclaimed that the Earth goes around the sun, rather than the sun going around the Earth, any number of rabbis and scholars and n knowledgeable Jews immediately ran to amend the text of the Chumash so that Torah would not end up saying that the sun goes around the earth. In other words, immediately, the response was, oh, Torah messed up. Torah made a mistake. We've got to adjust it, reinterpret it, so that it doesn't conflict with science. I mean, really embarrassing thing. When, when the American astronaut landed on the moon, Rabbi Gorin, of all people, who is a brilliant scholar, maybe not a very good politician, but a brilliant scholar, Rabbi Gorin immediately, I mean, it's shameful. He immediately said that the text in the Siddur should be changed. Which text? The bracha you make when the moon is full. Kiddush Levana. There's a text there that reads, just as I could never reach you, may my enemies never be able to reach me. And we're talking about the moon. So since this guy landed on the moon, he said, change it, change it, fix it. It's an embarrassment. I mean, so, it was so childish. Obviously, the meaning of the text is that as you stand there on Earth and try to jump and you can't reach the moon, doesn't mean that there's no way anyone can ever get... The prayer is that in order for my enemy to harm me, he should have to spend as much money as NASA spends to get to the moon. That's a good prayer. <laughs> but you see that there's some kind of a reflex in us where as soon as we hear something that conflicts with Torah, right away we're on the defensive. Why? Why do we do that? And even if we're not willing to throw, the, throw in the towel, but we're at least willing to negotiate. <laughs> you know, we're, really we're ready to compromise, like Israel. Always ready to compromise. Why do we have to do that? The scientists come out and they say, you know something? The world is not 5,000 years old. It's 5 million years old. And immediately you have rabbis and scholars who say, oh, 
Well, that, maybe that's what the Torah meant too. A day didn't necessarily have to mean a day. It could have meant a million years. How can a day mean, mean a million years? Oh, because it says that by God, a day is a thousand years. Well, a, th a thousand years, not a million. You, you got to stretch it a little bit because you don't want to be in conflict with science, do you? So how do we do this? How do we work in Torah? If somebody comes along and suggests, for any reason at all, suggests that the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was only an allegory. So what do we do? What does a Jew do? You take a look at the ancient commentaries. You look at the earlier commentaries and see if anybody then had suggested that maybe that's really the case. If there was such a suggestion, then you've got a leg to stand on. If nobody ever said that, then just because the scientists came up with some kind of thing, so now we're going to turn it into an allegory in order that it shouldn't conflict? So, if you take a look in the commentaries, there isn't a commentary in the world who doesn't say that Shir Hashirim is an allegory. Everybody says that. It's not because we don't want it to sound like pornography, therefore we say that it's an... It's always been an allegory. Right from the beginning it was understood as such. On the other hand, anything in Chumash, to suggest that anything in Chumash is an allegory, was, has always been considered blasphemy. Because Chumash cannot be allegorical. The prophecies about Mashiach, the Rambam says, are allegorical. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Well, who knows what that means, the Rambam says. We'll, we'll find out when it happens. But does it mean that the nature of the wolf is going to change? He's not going to eat lamb chops anymore? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. So when it doesn't necessarily mean that, if Torah says, but it's understood that when it, when it comes to the prophecies concerning the future, this, the prophets were very vague. And they couched their words, and they didn't, you know, didn't come right out and give us a date, obviously. Because they didn't want us to know. But Chumash is the exact opposite. In Chumash, every word must be literal. It's a different... Chumash has a different function. And in Chumash, there can't be any allegories. That is an interesting thing. An interesting Rashi. In, in, uh, on, on Noyach. The thought that maybe in the pre-flood days, time was counted differently. Maybe the year was different then. Maybe a month was different then. Maybe a day was different then. How do we know what, what people then considered a year, or a week, or a month? Rashi is trying to make a, a, a reckoning of the various ages of different people in the Torah. And so Rashi says that Noyach was 601 years old when he came out of the, out of the, um, out of the ark. He was 600 years old when he got into the ark. That says that in the Torah. So Rashi says 
that if you add up the 40 days and 40 nights in which it rained, and then the months in which it took before the water began to recede, and then the weeks that he waited after he sent out the first bird, and then the weeks that he waited after he sent out the last birds, if you add it all together, you have a year. In other words, the year consisted of 12 months, months consisted of 30 days, so that the day back in the pre-flood times was the same day we have now. So when it says that the people lived to be 600 years old, it means 600 years worth of days as we know them today. The same year, same months, same weeks, same days. <coughs> so the need to reinterpret the Torah to mean that the first day of creation was a million years, the second day of creation was another million years. That, that, that expresses a feeling of insecurity that we have about Torah. 